Well, if you would uh, look on page 11 of your worship folder, you'll find our scripture text this morning, which is Genesis chapter 3. So hear God's word to us this morning from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the, wor- to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but that God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and you are, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. If you would please pray with me. Oh God, we pray that you would meet us in the midst of this text that wherever we find ourselves, as we hear your voice, that we would not hide 
amongst the trees that we would not try to cover ourselves to escape your presence. But help us to know that you are the God who seeks us out, who, as Rusty prayed, has found us and is looking for us. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, in faith or out of faith, in despair or with hope, that you are the God who searches and comes after us, looking for us, because you created us for yourself. So meet us this morning in this story. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Where have we been and where are we going? In the early fall, I started a sermon series on human sexuality called Something Beautiful for God, a Christian vision for human sexuality. And we're sort of in a transition point here in this sermon. And I wanted to to step back a little bit and to kind of think about where have we come and where are we going. This question of sexuality, I've often wrestled with the length of this sermon series. I don't actually know of anybody who's spent almost a year doing a sermon series on human sexuality. And I kind of feel guilty sometimes about it as if it's too much. And yet, in a way, sexuality is not something that you can just deal with in a short six to ten week series, right? And kind of understand, here's what the Bible says and now I'm going to do it. What I've been trying to argue and show you is actually this question of human sexuality is is fundamental to what it means to be human. It gets at the core questions of who, who am I? What did God create me to be? What's my role in creation? What does it mean to be male and female? These are very fundamental questions. And the, the argument that I'm making and the title of the series, Something Beautiful for God, is that the, the biblical understanding of human sexuality will never be compelling. In other words, it will never be true for you if you can't also see it as good and beautiful. It's not enough to say, here's what the Bible says and it's true and I believe it and that settles it. What we need to do is we need to tell the whole story because you know, our, our morals and ethics, morality only makes sense in the context of a story. And the reason why the biblical understanding of human sexuality seems so preposterous in our culture is that we've lost the story. There's another story that's much more powerful that has been narrated to us from birth. And so that's one of the reasons why we've taken, I've taken a long time to tell this story. And I, I just want to briefly recap before we get into this morning's text of where we've come. In the beginning, we started really with Jesus' cue. Jesus, when he's talking about divorce in Matthew, and the, the Pharisees are trying to trip him up, he, he says, have you not read what God has written? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the male and female. Jesus directs our attention and our conversations about sexuality back to the original creation. And so for the first uh, 11 or 12 weeks of this series, we spent basically all of that time in Genesis 1 and 2. We're looking at the question, what does it mean to be created in God's image? It's to be, uh, have an original relationship with the Creator. It's to be created for fruitfulness. It's to have power and authority and dominion. It's to be male and female. It's to have a body. It's to be naked and unashamed. So we laid all of these, this groundwork um, of what is, what, is, what is human sexuality as God originally intended it. And all those sermons are online. You can go back and listen to them, and I encourage you to if you haven't kept up. And we took a little break for Advent, and, and now we're back in Epiphany, which I know is... Epiphany means manifestation or appearance. And we've been really reflecting over the past four weeks on the person of Jesus. 
I think one of the things I want you not to miss is that this is, you know, I say it's a Christian vision of human sexuality, but I, I want to adjust it and say it's a Christ vision for human sexuality. We cannot talk about human sexuality without talking about the person of Christ as Christians. We ought not and we dare not ever remove that conversation with, from the question of who is Jesus? What do I think about him? And what is his call in my life? And so four weeks, we, we, I looked at this question, what does it mean for Jesus to show compassion? What is the authority of Jesus? What is the sexuality of Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus, as a human being, he has a sexuality? And last week, we, re, we looked at this question of, what does Jesus' call look like? It involves death and suffering and the cross. And those are all the groundwork. And so this morning, what we look at is we kind of begin exploring this question of, what does human sexuality look like? under the conditions of fallenness. Under the, the idea that, that, that the world is a fallen place. This story we just read in Genesis, it's sinful. And how does that shape our understanding and our experience of sexuality? That's what I want to explore with you this morning. And after the time of Lent, we'll, just to give you a sense of what's ahead, we'll turn to this question of what I'll call a new creation sexuality. What does it mean for us as redeemed believers to experience creation in a way that confirms the goodness of the original creation and yet, in surprising and miraculous ways, goes beyond it. But this morning I want us to wrestle with this one question, how does the fall, how does sin transform our understanding of sexuality? And this is a big picture sermon, um, but there's three things I think this story teaches us about our experience of sexuality. And that there three are this. It's, we experience our sexuality as disordered, as shame or shameful and as frustrated. So there's disorder, shame, and frustration that we see in this text. Now, setting the scene a little bit, it's important. We're in the garden. God planted a garden in the east. And what is the Garden of Eden? It's a place that is rich with natural resources. You've got these rivers, you've got gold, all these natural uh, elements and minerals. You've got trees that have fruit. You've got animals. And you have this man and you have this woman. They come together. And the garden, of course, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, is really a holy of holies. As God creates the universe, it's like a cosmos. Or a, a, the cosmos, it's like a temple. And inside the temple is this garden, and the garden is a holy of holies. And the garden is a place of fruitfulness. It's a place that God himself planted. And he puts the man and the woman in the garden as image bearers, in a sense, to continue the work that he began of cultivation. And so the garden becomes this metaphor, it becomes this image of fruitfulness and bounty that is, flows from this creator God, and that God has set these human beings in the midst of the garden. And so when you think about the Garden of Eden, don't just think about a place. The Garden of Eden isn't just a place, it's a picture of what God intended the world to be initially. It was a promise of something. I mean, the garden wasn't just a static place. God wanted Adam and Eve to cultivate, to continue planting, to continue cultivating, to build out. The garden isn't just a place, it's a picture of the way God went of the world to be, but it's also an experience. It was an experience of harmony, of oneness, of one flesh between the man and the woman, between human beings and animals, and between human beings and God. Now, enter stage right, the serpent. The very first line, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. What is this serpent? Now, I think our tendency is to want to um, read backwards and to say, well, the serpent, of course, is the devil. This is Satan. 
And, of course, I think that the, the, the Scriptures later on understand this and the Christian tradition, but we have to be careful as we read this text because the serpent is actually a pretty ambiguous creature. He's, he's cunning. He's sly. He's, he's very crafty. But he's not evil incarnate. That's what I want to... It's not as if this serpent is the sort of evil principle that is coming in and disrupting everything. He is disrupting, but it's more subtle than that. When you read this story, you can't come away with this idea that the devil made him do it. <laughs> right? That's what, that's what I want, to, want you to be clear of. This, the serpent is a crafty creature. He's a wild beast. That's literally what the, what the Hebrew says. He's a wild animal. He's one of God's wild animals. And I think the best way to think about the serpent is as, a, as an agent of chaos. As a chaos creature. And that's one of the themes that you, you see in, in, in the Old Testament. You have this figure called a Leviathan. You see the sea creature. And oftentimes the snake in ancient uh, mythology of, of this world was associated with Leviathans, with these chaos creatures. And, and, and that's what the serpent is like. He's like, a, he's like an agent of chaos. And, and this is important because when you go back to the very beginning of Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning God created. Right? So God created the heavens and earth. And then the next verse it says, in the earth, right? So God's created, but he didn't just create the world perfect. It says the earth was without form and void. In other words, it, the Hebrew is tohu vavohu. There's this mass chaos or non-order. And then when God begins to create right through the days, he's, he separates the light from the dark. He separates the land from the sea. He's imposing order, right? God is taking chaos non-order, and what he's doing by creating in the seven days is establishing order, symmetry, relationship, right? And when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, what he's, he's asking them to do as image bearers is to continue that, that work of bringing order to non-order. And so when, when the serpent comes in, the serpent, the early readers would have seen the serpent as a kind of chaos creature, right? He's, he's questioning all of God. He's questioning God's order. He's questioning how God has set things up. Wait, no. And he he's creates this confusion. I'm like, did God really say you couldn't eat of these trees? He's questioning the order and the boundaries that God sets up. And when you see the temptation of, of, of the man and the woman, I think there's, there's a couple of things. It's such a rich text. I spent 12 weeks in just two chapters of Gen- Genesis 2, really. I'm not going to have the time to do that here. But there's such, a rich, there's such a rich text here. But I want to draw your attention to the temptation. And there's two things about temptation that leads to disobedience, that, that, that the, serpent sort of, the serpent sort of sows. First is confusion. He sows confusion. Did God really say that? And, and he intentionally misstates, you know, God only said you couldn't eat from one tree. He said, didn't God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? And of course, Eve has to correct him and says, no, no, we're, we can't, just that one tree. But then Eve actually adds another thing. And you know, she says, you can't eat of any trees lest you die, right? You can't even touch of it. Now, God never said, lest you touch of it, you would die. So Eve, Eve seems to be adding on the sort of thing. So you have this sense of confusion already about what did God say, what did God not say, right? But then this then leads to distrust. And usually this is the dynamic of temptation in our life, right? Confusion about what God actually said about something and then uh, a distrust of what God did say, right? And so the serpent's response to Eve is like, well, you know, you're not going to die. Are you really going to die? It's, a, it's in the form of a question, really, in, in, in the original. It's, will, will you really die? Is it going to be an immediate thing? I think God's actually keeping something from you. And this leads to this sense of distrust. 
around God's boundary or God's, God's ordering of the universe. Now when Adam and, the, or, and Eve, they, they eat of this tree, it was an act of disobedience, but I think what's really, you have to see to understand the Christian understanding of sin and evil. It's not as if there was this one good tree, the tree of life, and then there was this evil tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not an evil tree. It's just something that God said, don't eat it. Don't go there, right? <laughs> but it's not an evil principle. See, the evil actually is, is actually in the misuse of it. See, God created the entire universe good. All of it. The serpent even. God creates no evil things. And the choice between sin and evil is not necessarily a choice between pure evil or in all good. It's actually the misuse of something good. God said, don't go there. And so what happens when, when Adam and Eve and they, they eat of the fruit, the evil is really a rejection of the relationship. It was a violation of the relationship with God himself. We don't trust you, God. You're keeping something for us. And so they put themselves in the place of God. And it's that interesting that that phrase, the, no, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they've done, basically, in eating from the fruit, and what it symbolizes, they took for themselves a knowledge that is only proper to God to define what is good and evil. They, in a sense, put themselves in the place of God. And that's the essence, really, of disobedience. The essence of disobedience is really to determine for yourself what is right and wrong, right? It's to determine for yourself what is good and evil. It is for you to be the moral center of the universe. And we just do this in very subtle ways in our lives. Um, as a very good cultural example of this, um, in, in the, the Supreme Court case in 1992, uh, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there's a very famous statement by Justice um, um, Anthony Kennedy. And uh, that's a case that actually upheld Roe v. Wade. There were some different things, but the majority opinion uh, Kennedy wrote, and there's this famous line that gets quoted quite often that really gets at the heart of, I think, you know, what it means to eat of the tree. <laughs> he says, at the very heart of liberty, this is Kennedy arguing, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty, right, is, is to the right to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And the argument of that case was basically to uphold abortion rights as uh, that's a very personal choice of a woman, right? And she should have the right to define her own concept of existence and right and wrong. And the state shouldn't intrude and sort of impose that. Now, my point is not to, to, to make a point about abortion so much as to say that this illustrates, though, at a deep level, that idea, that principle is... We take for ourselves to determine what is right and wrong. We define existence rather than the creator. And this is the essence of sin. And what happens and what sort of comes because of this choice is disorder. <laughs> what disobedience unleashes into the created real world is disorder. Not just non-order, but disorder. And we participate in that. That's the meaning of original sin as human beings. We participate in this disorder. And that when uh, the Christian tradition talks about sin, and it uses this category um, about disordered desire, that to be a sinful person is to have this heart that's disordered, that, that's all messed up, to use kind of contemporary language, 
To have a sinful heart is, is to have a heart that's a hot mess, right? That, that in other words, that, that what you love is all messed up, right? You love, you love thing, some things too much, you don't love other things enough. And your priority is all wrong. I've often used this illustration of my uh, trying to fix my espresso machine um, in my basement, which is still down there, um, where I, you know, I, I had these electrical problems where I had certain, lo- certain wires that were going to different uh, circuit units that were running too much current, and they would trip it, and it would actually start smoking and, and burn the wire out because there was too much uh, yeah, electricity going to this. It wasn't a high enough gauge, and so it was actually a fire hazard, right? That's, that's how electrical fires start. And I think the human heart is like that. Like we, it's, like a, it's like an electrical box where all the wires have been pulled out and stuck in different you know, slots. And you have like, you know, uh, currents, you, know, you have these really strong currents running through these wires that can't possibly handle the current. And what creates is fire. It's dangerous. So that's what it means to have a disordered heart and disordered desires. It's not so much that you're sort of pure evil, right? It's just that you don't know how to love. Your priorities is all whack. You love some things too much and some things not enough. You turn things into idols. Okay, now stepping back here. Sexuality. What is this? You know, I think there's a couple important things to say about our reflection on sexuality here. One is this. The original sin was not sexual in nature. Some, some of the Christian churches wanted to make that argument. I think it's very problematic. Because that would give us the picture that somehow sexuality itself is evil or bad. And that is not at all the case. Friends, sexuality is good. Just like that, the tree of the knowledge of evil was good. It actually has to do with how we use it, though. It's the misuse of our sexuality that's evil, not the fact that we have it. So that's the first point. But the second point is this. All of you, all me, <laughs> have a disordered sexuality. All of us. We're all sexual sinners. So, all of us have disordered hearts, and the reality of the fall is it affects our sexuality. Whether you're married, or you're not married, whether you're same-sex attracted, or gender dysphoric, wherever you find yourself, I don't care, in whatever station, or however normal and good, we all struggle with a disordered sexuality, and we're all sexual sinners. There's not a single person in this room that knows what it was like to be like Adam and Eve before they ate of that tree. None of us, no human has ever existed since then, that, aside from the person of Jesus, that knows what that looks like. And what you see, though, is the immediate effects of this disordered and disobedience and chaos that comes into the world is a self-consciousness about sexuality, right? So even though the first sin wasn't sexual in nature, the immediate fallout is all of a sudden an awareness, a self-conscious awareness of one's own sexuality. Look in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now the serpent was correct. Their eyes were opened. That's what he said. Your eyes will be opened. But he was incorrect about the kind of knowledge they would have. See, they did not, when their eyes were opened, have a divine knowledge, the knowledge they were hoping for. What they had was a knowledge that all of a sudden they were naked. And in a sense, it was a wretched knowledge. It was a crippling knowledge, a self-consciousness. And rather than increasing, this was a knowledge that diminished them, diminished their freedom, 
because in a way what it did is separate them from God and also from one another. I, um, back in the fall, had a sermon on naked and unashamed. And one of the ideas that I explored, I think is very important for understanding this story is this, is that it's not as if Adam and Eve are like little children who are just sort of unself-aware and run naked. You know, little kids do this. They don't really, they're not aware of other people looking at them, and so they don't have that consciousness. There's, there's some sense in which that might be true. It's not as if Adam and Eve were naked. I mean, they were naked without, but they were not naked within. See, see that what they had is they were, they were robed with glory and honor. They were robed with the holiness and the presence of God. And when they ate of the fruit, what they lost was that glory. They lost that robe, that moral clothing, and all of a sudden, they have this crippling self-consciousness. I'm naked. I, I, stand, I stand here, and I have to cover myself. That perfect unity with God, that one flesh experience that they had is now gone, and there are these divided selves. And this idea of shame, especially in this text, gets at this idea of disunion, right? All of a sudden, there's this disunion between them and the very source of life, their creator. And they have to hide, right? When they hear God, they they run for cover. The one who used to walk with them and be with them, now they're hiding from him. And really, that's the essence of shame, right? The essence of shame is the desire to hide yourself, to cover yourself, to flee, to not be vulnerable. Because you're afraid somebody's going to see the ugliness. Somebody's going to see something they don't like. And so you have to protect yourself. Because at the end of the day, you're naked within. Like, you're morally naked. Spiritually naked. And that's how Adam and and Eve were. St. Augustine has uh, an insightful observation about this story. He says, they sinned with their eyes and their hands... Right? They, took, they look at it, and they took it, and then they ate of it. But it's, it's their sexuality that they want to cover. Right? It's not like they put gloves on or a face mask on after they eat of the fruit. All of a sudden, that sin, though, leads to them to say, oh, I'm exposed. My, my, my sort of sexual organs are exposed. Which is interesting. Why is that, right? Why is it that the effect of sin... It wasn't a sexual sin, but all of a sudden now I'm very self-aware of my own sexuality and my need to cover and hide it. I think there's a lot of reflection that could go there, but I, I just want to draw one observation out here is this, is that this question of sexuality, right, our most inner part of ourselves, right, you could think about our sort of sexuality or our sexual organs as the most intimate part of ourselves, right? Why? Because they're the, they're the means by which we are, we're vulnerable and exposed there as in our bodies, but, we're, but it's the means by which we connect. At least it, we connect, right? Initially, that was, it was a connection point. And all of a sudden, that place of connection point is something I have to cover. Um, there's a disunion and disunity there, right? And there's shame that gets surrounded by it. You know, shame... I think one of the, the, here's the idea that I want you to kind of leave with, with this idea of shame here that we learned from this story. Shame is to no longer be at home in your body, right? That, at the essence, I mean, shame is very complex, and there's a lot to shame, there's more to it than simply that. But here, I think I want to draw attention to, to be, to have shame is to no longer be at home in your body. It, it's, to, it's to feel what, I'm too fat or I'm too ugly, or it's to feel a sense of embarrassment and I don't want to expose myself. Or, or when you get older, right? Or you're sick 
And you're like, my body is not cooperating anymore. It's not doing what I want it to do. Or my body becomes, or in, in puberty, right? Or the experience of lust in our life. What Paul was saying, this sense of this divided self. I, I my, find my body wanting something that I know I shouldn't want. Desiring something I know I shouldn't want that. I shouldn't go there. Why am I doing this? So the reality of shame means that we have this frustrated body. And shame is a permanent stain. It's a permanent stain. We, it's not going away. We, you know, psychologists talk about uh, shame in people's lives, and they try to trace it back to these traumatic experiences in life that create shame, and try to, therapy is dealing with that traumatic experience and not being shamed anymore. But here's the reality, friends. Original sin is, is the original trauma from which our shame comes and, and you can try all you want to get rid of shame in your life. And our whole culture is, is oriented towards that now. Ancient, you know, traditional cultures had different ways of dealing with shame. They had honor and shame. Here, we just want to abolish shame altogether. And so we're going to just remove all of those cultural moral foundations that make us shameful, right? That thing that we used to say is wrong, well, that's not wrong anymore. Right? That's kind of our MO. But friends, that, it doesn't work, right? You can have everybody in the world tell you you're good, tell you you're beautiful, tell you you're great. And the culture can affirm us in every way and say, well, no, that's not immoral. But it doesn't actually remove the shame. It's a stain. And I think that's important for us to recognize when we think about this, that, that shame is part of the fall. It's, a frustra- it's to be frustrated in your very body and experience. And that's what you see here is frustration, which is the last point. The curse. God hands out curses to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man, individually. See, disobedience means that we don't and we no longer experience sexuality as, this, as just a place of pure blessing. In the beginning, that's what it was. God created the man and the woman. said, you know, uh, God created the male and female, and he says to both of them, be fruitful and multiply, and he blessed them. It says, have dominion and authority. See, sexuality was part of blessing. It was at the core of blessing. But now what you have also is curse. The reality of the curse is to have a frustrated sexuality. God's cursing of the man and the woman directly impact their sexuality. Look, look at verse 16. Um, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. When God created male and female... He created them as equals, as partners, both for fruitfulness and dominion. And here what we see is we get this this picture where God says the curse, the reality of the curse is this, that one flesh experience you had in the garden, that cooperative, harmonious relationship in unity and difference is now going to be one that is marked by strife and struggle patriarchy, domination, manipulation. Is that not still the case today, friends? The relationship between men and women. And it's interesting, too, that God divides the task now. It's the woman, right, who's directed to childbirth and fruitfulness and pain, and the man is directed with dominion authority and the frustration of a created order. Already you see the pulling apart of that one fleshness, that unity between male and female and the way that the curse get handed out. And God says to Eve, so you have the frustration of the sexes and disharmony between male and female. 
that is a result of the curse. But then you have the frustration and pain of fruitfulness. And God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Childbirth, which was, would have been a place of incredible joy, pure joy and blessing, is now also a place of curse, a place of pain, of death. And it's not as if just the act of giving birth, we know that giving birth is a very painful experience for a woman. But friends, what happens in chapter 4? Eve will have two sons, Cain and Abel, and one will kill the other, and the other will be exiled. She loses two sons. See, the pain of childbirth is not just the pain of the physical delivery. It's the pain of raising children. It's the pain of bringing new life into the world. And it falls on the shoulders of the woman, especially the pain of that. And it is true that women, not exclusively, but especially the burden falls heavy. Not just from the physical perspective, but the emotional, spiritual perspective. That fruitfulness is not just all blessing. It's a mixed bag of curse and blessing. But then you see the third is this. Is God says to the man, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and for dust you shall return. Man and woman were given the task of dominion and authority over creation to cultivate. Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't have bread. They just ate fruit off of trees. And now God is saying, no longer will you just eat. It's like fruit off of trees. You will have to work. You'll have to grow some wheat, you'll have to cut it down, you'll have to mill it, and you'll have to bake some bread. It's a lot more work to eat now. The toil, you'll find that this creation is no longer cooperative with you. It will throw in things, thorns and thistles. Creation will resist your attempt to bring order to it. It will resist your attempt to bring um, meaning from it. And you will work your entire life, and you'll think you have gained something, but you've gained nothing at all because you will go back to it as dust. (laughs) There's a futility there. Your hard life of toil and work will not reward you, Adam. See, these are the curses, right? And this is the reality that all of us, as men and women, labor under. A frustrated sexuality, conflict between male and female, pain and suffering around fruitfulness, frustration around trying to make it in the world, trying to bring dominion and authority. See, the experience of the fall is a cup mixed with blessing and curse, great joy and incredible sorrow. Consummation, often momentary, but also unfulfilled longing. This is the reality, friends, of sexuality after the fall. But this is not where the story ends. And you even see here in the very beginning of this story, as God is handing out curses, you get a picture of God's redemption of the world. In verse 15, God speaking to the woman, or actually to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
The early church fathers called this the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. In other words, this is the first prediction and promise or prophecy of Jesus' coming into the world. The offspring of the woman, of course, is Jesus. And Eve, or Mary, becomes the second Eve. And Jesus becomes the second Adam. And what's so interesting and so important for you to see here is, how does God bring redemption? How does he bring redemption to a fallen world, to a fallen sexuality? By a redeemed sexuality. You see, it's through an offspring, right? It's through the seed that God does that. Friends, a couple weeks back I talked about the sexuality of Jesus as one who fully enters into our, the human condition. He fully enters into all of the fallenness, although without sin, of what it means to have a human body and to live and exist under the curse. And we could go through his life and look at the ways that he's reversing this effect. But I just want to draw your attention to two things. The one is this. Shame. The reality of shame that Jesus himself, Adam, to cover his shame, wanted to go and hide himself in the trees and to cover himself. And Jesus, as a second Adam, what happens to him? He is stripped and he's hung on a tree. He becomes a curse. He doesn't just experience a curse, he becomes a curse. It says, cursed is anybody who hangs on a tree. And he becomes the accursed one. And he endures an act of final shaming, in a sense. Again, what the writer of Hebrews says, that he endured the shame of the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. And he returns to the dust, just like Adam. God had promised Adam, you will go to the dust. And he does go to the dust in death. But he doesn't stay in the dust. He's resurrected to new life. Friends, do not forget that it is the person of Jesus, the whole person of Jesus, that is the response to a fallen sexuality. It is in Him and through Him that all of our disorders and our shame and our frustrations are met and God meets us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we uh, labor under the burden of broken bodies, sinful bodies, under the experience of shame, frustration. And we call out like Paul, O wretched man, O wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thank you, Lord, that your offspring and the person of Jesus came to deliver us from this body of death. And even now, as those who live between times, who have these bodies of death, We have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of new life working in us. And so help us to be a hopeful people that puts their trust and faith in Jesus Christ who goes before us in all ways. In his name we pray. Amen.